May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Our lectionary has had us in the book of Genesis for quite some time now, a number of weeks. We looked at the story of Noah over a couple weeks. We've been in the story of Abraham the past couple weeks, and it is awesome. The book of Genesis is one of my favorites, if I'm allowed to have a favorite. Last week, we read about the reaffirmation of the promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, the initial promises, of course, coming in Genesis chapter 12. This week, we read, we read an important story about Abraham receiving some mysterious visitors, but there is a story that's running in the background of today's Old Testament reading that occurred all the way back in chapter 13. You see, when Abraham was called out of the land of his family, his brother's son, Lot, came with him. And the problem was that Lot didn't stay with Abraham after they left because their respective servants couldn't seem to get along. There wasn't enough land for the two of them. And so Lot chose to dwell to the east of Abraham. And it should be noted that characters going east in the book of Genesis is never really a good idea for them. It's never a good sign because it symbolizes going back to Eden. So Cain, for example, goes east after he kills his brother. And so Lot settles in the city of Sodom which is a city described as wicked, full of sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And what immediately follows our reading today, the second half of Genesis chapter 18, includes two of Abraham's three visitors going to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, where the men of the city want to sexually assault them, and they escape with Lot and his family before the city is destroyed by God's judgment. Now, last week, we talked about the rhythm in God's reaffirmation of his promise to Abraham. We talked about how there's grace, God's grace at work in the call of Abraham, and that grace enabled Abraham to respond, the second rhythm in the story, which is, of course, one of positive faith that involved trust and obedience. As a result, then, the third part of the rhythm, God's promise to Abraham sustained Abraham, and God was faithful to deliver on that promise. Today, we zoom in on the second part of that, of that rhythm, the response aspect, and we look at three pictures of how to respond to grace when God offers it to us. There's Lot, there's Sarah, and there's Abraham. Now, before we jump into the specific characters, though, it's helpful to note that the geographical locations in which events in Scripture happen are really important, and this is especially true in a book like Genesis. And so the encounter that Abraham has today with these mysterious guests happens under a tree in the plains of Mamre. The meaning of Mamre is something like vision or seeing or understanding. Unlike physical sight, it's important to note that spiritual sight is not something out of our control. So maybe you were born with an astigmatism or you were born nearsighted or farsighted and there's very little that you can do to control those conditions. Maybe the most choice you have is whether you wear glasses or contacts. Spiritual sight is something that we can condition and it's tied to what we do. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, for they shall see God. The purer in heart, the less distracted you are by the world, the holier you are, the more clearly you can see things for how they actually are. And so Sarah in our story this morning is an example of someone who cannot see, at least not at this point in the story. When she overhears the promise that she'll have a son, what does she do? She laughs. She can't see God's power to transform her situation. She's old, she says. I can't possibly have children. 
Lot is another character who may be able to see some. I mean, he saw enough to know he needed to leave with Abraham, but his vision seems obscured because his impaired sight makes him mistake something lesser, that is the land around Sodom and Gomorrah, as a greater good. And so in this story, the only character that possessed discernment and purity of heart is Abraham, and it enables him not only to see God, but also to feast with God. Now, what is Abraham's response to these three visitors? It's one of hospitality. And it's important to remember that in the ancient world, hospitality was everything. It could very literally be the difference between life and death. Hospitality recognizes someone as worth doing life with. Now, for most of us, that happens in a social sense. After Mass, we might say, hey, would you like to go out to lunch? And you say, oh, I'd love to. And we're, we're identifying each other as worthy to spend our times with. There's a kind of social bond there. But in the ancient world, it was very literal in terms of life and death. When a sojourner comes to your house, you have a responsibility to feed them because they may starve if you don't. They can't go to the corner and go to the bodega where they could get a snack. Lack of hospitality was one of the primary reasons that Sodom and Gomorrah are depicted as so depraved and why they're judged so harshly. These two visitors are not welcomed except by lot and exposed to the unnatural violence of sexual assault. The men in the city want them. Meanwhile, what does Abraham do when his trio of visitors arrives? He washes their feet, he prepares them a meal, and he does all this with haste. In fact, if you go back and you reread the passage, paying attention mainly to the verbs and the adverbs in the story, you might get tired trying to keep up with Abraham. Because Abraham sees the visitors while he's sitting under the tree, and he runs to meet them. He hastened to the tent, where he tells Sarah to make the meal quickly. Abraham then runs to the herd. And a servant hastens to dress the the slaughtered calf. So he's running. You can imagine Sarah may have been very annoyed with him at, at a certain point. But Abraham's hospitality and the haste with which he exercises that hospitality is an extension of his vision. He sees these important visitors because of his purity in heart, and he reacts accordingly, recognizing what's important and being quick to act on it. Now, who are these three visitors? Who are these three visitors that appear to Abraham? There have been two proposals, as far as I can tell, in terms of the history of the church reading this passage. The first is that this is the Trinity itself, that this is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Perhaps you've seen the famous icon called the Trinity, or the Hospitality of Abraham, by Eastern Orthodox artist Rublev, in which he clearly reads this interpretation into the story. The characters kind of look like angels, but they're sharing one cup, the three persons, one God, and so that's his depiction of the story. However, another reading of this, while while the story may be an anticipation or a symbol of the Trinity, is that the party is made up of two angels and the pre-incarnate Christ. And this, I think, is the interpretation that I tend to favor because Jesus is the visible image of his invisible father. This explanation casts light onto why it's only two angels who go to Sodom and Gomorrah instead of the original three in the party. Abraham's purity of heart enables him to see God. And what time of day do the angels arrive? It's midday when the sun is at the highest. Abraham is illuminated. He can see most clearly. Lot, whose vision is impaired, does not get to see God. The word does not go with the other two angels, though he is rescued by the angels, but they come to him at night, symbolizing maybe his spiritual state and certainly the spiritual state of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And so we learn that the soul prepares a banquet for God. The soul, according to St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, is a temple of God. The soul is the bridal chamber being prepared for the groom. And so Abraham shows us what it looks like to welcome God into ourselves, welcome him into our hearts. And so what do we learn from Abraham today? How does this story, which is our story, teach us to live? First, it teaches us to respond. When God comes to us, when God extends his grace to us, we are to respond with all of ourselves. When God comes to us in his humiliated form in the Eucharist, we hold nothing back from him. We come to the altar and we give him every part of who we are. We make the bread, we kill the calf, we offer ourselves to him, we participate alongside of him. And second, as we, as we practice this self-offering in the sacramental and liturgical life of the church, we're given the grace to make this reality in our own lives. We're developing a purity of heart, a spiritual vision that helps us to see things for how they are. There was a church father in the 6th century named Caesarius of Arles, lived in France. And, and he read this passage spiritually. And one of the cool things he does is that when Abraham goes to Sarah and says that she should make three measures of fine meal into bread, he says those three measures are the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, which we talked about last week. If we, participating with God, develop these virtues, nourish these virtues inside of ourselves, then we can be pure of heart. Then we can see him. With faith, hope, and love, we more clearly see him in the Eucharist. But perhaps more importantly, with faith, hope, and love, we can more clearly see him in our neighbors and those we come in contact with. But finally, it's very important for us to follow Abraham's example and how quickly he obeys. Abraham wastes no time. He jumps straight into serving his visitors. There's no hesitation. It's very easy for us to delay and to procrastinate. In fact, this is something we've been working with uh, the boys at home because they have developed this way of learning how to stall. You know, so we say, hey, clean the living room and then you can watch TV. Oh, I'm tired. I'll do it when I'm not tired. Or something like this. You know, or, they'll, or, they'll, or they'll go find something else to do in the interim. You, know, you say, no, do it right now. Obey immediately. But they're really no different from us. They're really no different from us. I mean, it's more pronounced, but we do the same thing. We delay, we procrastinate. Maybe it's in dealing with a bad habit or a vice or one of those besetting sins. Besetting sins are those sins that we constantly struggle with. Everyone has their own besetting sins. And, you know, sometimes we don't really want to stop them. And so we put it off. We say, oh, guess what? I'll do it later. I'll deal with it later. But later never comes. Or maybe it's, it's that we procrastinate performing a positive duty. Oh, I know, I should go to Mass, but I'm so busy, so I'll start going when things calm down a little bit. Well, guess what? Things don't ever calm down a little bit. No, now is the time. Now is the time. If you don't respond to the grace that's offered to you when it's offered to you, why is waiting going to magically make you responsive? It won't. All that exists to us poor, feeble creatures who are stuck in a space-time continuum that progresses linearly is right now. Right now is all that exists. And so when your creator and your savior shows up to you, now is the time to respond, not later, now. And so we trust and obey. That's been a constant refrain over the past few weeks as we've been in Genesis. But it's important that we trust and obey with haste, that we recognize that this is the most important thing we can be doing with our time. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.